now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the first episode of our new R&D season, Just Science host Dr. John Morgan speaks with Dr. Bruce Badoli, the Executive Director of the Institute of Applied Genetics and Professor at the University of North Texas Health Science Center at Fort Worth. Did you know that if you swab a one centimeter square area of skin, you'll recover up to 10,000 bacterial cells? Microbiome profiling for forensic identification complements partial or inconclusive STR profiles to increase resolution for human source attribution. Performance assessment is underway and preliminary data indicate that the candidate panel can characterize human-based selected microbes even at initially low abundant body sites. Listen along as John and Bruce explore research surrounding human microbiome flora and their implications on forensic science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. And today we are at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences in Seattle, Washington. We are literally having a fireside chat outside the ballrooms here, and today's guest is uh, someone we've had on the podcast before, Bruce Badoli from the University of North Texas Health Science Center, and formerly with the FBI, one of the uh, uh, people who actually invented how modern DNA methods are done and, and how statistics are characterizing DNA. Uh, he's giving me the, well, not really, but uh, without his presence at the FBI providing that scientific foundation, we would not be where we are as a field today. Welcome, Bruce, to the program. Yeah, glad to be here. How are you today? I think I'm doing okay. It's, it's, it's cold as all get out in Seattle, so I'm told it's not supposed to be like this. That's what they tell me, too, but I think they've been lying to us. So you're working right now, you're really focusing in on the human microbiome and particularly the skin microbiome, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the areas, and we have a number of different things we're looking at, but this is one that, in particular, we think has a lot of potential value for, in our case, human identification. Here's a true confession. I did some ChemBio work back in the day, did a lot of sampling work in biome, and we had a DARPA program, and I was picking up some staph, and I'm trying to remember which species it is. It's very, the staph species is very common on the skin. It's not one of the ones that makes you sick unless you're very immune compromised. And staph aureus. Probably, yeah. Uh, and we were getting some on our witness plates. And the DARPA program manager's like, so, why are you getting that? <laughs> and I was, I was like, oh my gosh, I think, I think I should have been more careful in my sampling. So there's all sorts of microbiome out there. So how do you determine which species you're even going to start with in terms of approaching this problem of, of using the skin microbiome from a forensics perspective? Well, I think you've asked the question in a unique way, more in the way that we're looking at it than traditionally has been looked at traditionally being the past few years of individuals who are researching the microbiome area for human identification or skin and such. Most of the methods that have been used have focused in two, two approaches. One is looking at 16S ribosomal RNA, which is a single gene site 
And it's a very good site because there's substantial data on almost every species or strain that's been typed to date. But it lacks that kind of resolution to get down to fine detail to allow us to get that good, strong individualization that we believe we need. So by individualization, you mean down to the strain level of the species of bacteria? Or? That, that's one way of looking at it. But let's take that as one part. 16S is usually more at the genus level sometimes species, but you rarely can get down to that level. But being able to tap down at that level means that we can translate that into maybe better individualization of the human microbiome, which then is tied to a person. So that we can use that as a way to identify the person who may have touched some items. Right. So that's one approach. So there's two parts to it. One is the kind of approach to identify the marker of interest, and the other is being able to take touch samples. So when a human touches samples now, they leave some of their shed cells or DNA that they've touched, whether it's from their skin or they touch their mouth or sweat or whatever it may be. And we know that those samples often have very little DNA in them, so are the challenging samples. And so there's a lot of different ways people have to go around trying to analyze them. New technologies like probabilistic genotyping are helping to facilitate that, but one can never do better than the quality of what the evidence is when you start an analysis. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about low copy numbers in the single digits or tens and twenties, you're really looking at clutter as well. I mean, there's a huge amount of human DNA all over the surfaces that sure. are in the world yeah. here. And it's the same sort of issue, but even if you get it, and let's say even it came from just one individual when you touch the item, you have very low level. There's a lot of those stochastic effects and uh, things dropping out, so if you enhance the sensitivity, you get contamination or drop in. And so this complicates the interpretation. So our concept was if humans are shedding their human DNA, they're also shedding their microbial DNA. Now when we think about microbes, um, depending on the estimates, anywhere from 10 times as many microbes in and on your body than human cells, and some up to maybe equal amounts. That's a substantial amount of cells that you are housing and carrying with you that you're shedding at the same time. So if you're shedding microbial cells, and we can uh, associate them back to the host that shed those cells, we could use that independent of or in conjunction with the limited human DNA and probably get a more robust identification of an individual. Obviously, because of my prior work, I'm familiar with the fact that there's a, a fair amount of microbiome, as it were, on the skin. But generally speaking, when people think about this, they're thinking about gut bacteria and uh, mouth. But even on the skin, there's very particular areas where there's biome. I know there's a guy, I saw some research recently, a guy trying to adjust the biome of the underarm to eliminate the uh, bacteria that produce odor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, so... It's called deodorant. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. So theoretically, this would be useful in other areas. But like if you're eating a donut, you're leaving behind microbes, but on the other hand, the copy number for the human DNA left behind is going to be much greater. So it's not as relevant? Is that the case? Well, let's say it's probably relevant, but probably not needed as often when you have substantial amounts of DNA. So we're focusing on the skin cells because the skin that touches an item or an object, so particularly the hand, for instance. So if you have a hand microbiome and it touches an item, that would be a value because whatever's being transferred may be helped to identify the individual, that signature. Now, uh, there have been studies that if you swab a one centimeter square area of skin, they recover up to 10,000 bacterial cells. So that's a substantial amount of genomic information that probably overwhelms 
what would ever be captured by human DNA. And in fact, one of our little ad hoc studies in the grant we have right now, we did that where we took one of the swabbings of an individual and just off the skin. Sure. And uh, we ran our HID skinplex, which is a, a whole host of targeted microbes. And we got nearly 100% representation with the microbes. And we were anywhere between 30 to 50% with the human DNA markers that would be in one of these uh, messily parallel sequencing kits. Sure, sure. You're probably freaking out all sorts of OCD people who are listening right now thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> Wash my hands. I guess the bottom line here really is it's a signature like anything else. So the questions are, how unique is the biome or particular bacteria? Are you focusing in on particular species, I assume? Yes. So as I was saying before, you know, there was this approach where most of the individuals look at 16S ribosomal RNA. Others look at a short shotgun sequencing approach where they just look at the entire package of DNA that they, of the microbes that you get off, as they say, the skin. Each has advantages and disadvantages. The 16S, one target, you can enrich. You can see great depth of all the different species or strains that have that, but you can't get to that resolution level, so say at the general level. The whole genome sequencing approach looks across the entire genome, but when you think of having thousands of species and you're looking across sure, it's, the It's a big genome, data problem. Well, more than just data, you're going to not fully represent anything, and you're going to miss data. You have a lot of stochastic effects as well. So these two extremes aren't where we want to be. We want something in between. So what we've done is, is we go to that original shotgun sequencing data and we mined it for those species that are very abundant in the human skin and that are informative across different parts of the body. Ideally, you want it from any skin body that would be representative and also across people. Now, of course, we haven't done all the studies and you can't type everybody in the world, but if it's highly abundant and it's in all the people we test to date, it's more likely stable than that. Now, until we do enough studies, uh, we won't know, but there was a nice study that was published a couple of years back that is looked at about a dozen individuals at about 17 body sites at three time periods, one that's a, a short five to 10 week period, and then you know anywhere from 10 to 30 months later. So you have at least something to look at for trying to find if there's some hint of stability okay. on what is more abundant in, in the human genome. For example, Probionic bacterium uh, acnes, or we just say quickly P. acnes, is highly abundant on the human skin. Mm -hmm. Why, I don't know, but um, it's either to protect you from others or just to give people pimples. I don't know what it is for. <laughs> right, like hence the name. <laughs> yeah, hence the name. And you look across the different body sites, and it's on all the body sites except three sites in that original study, and they're all on the foot. So I thought there was a lot of variation depending on where on the skin that you might do sampling. There is when you look at it in totality. I see. But if you look at targeted markers, you'll see that they exist in all the body parts. And that's the ones we'd like to have, ideally, if that ever is. The foot, it was unique because it just didn't show those particular, like P. acnes. But turns out P. acnes is there. It's just at a lower level, not detected well, because when you do shotgun sequence and you're looking at everything, you don't see it at a lower abundance. So that technical approach doesn't give you that opportunity to have the sensitivity detection you need. So what we did is we mined those and a few other species in there, so about a dozen species that seem to be common across the body sites and individuals in that study. And then we made our own little uh, multiplex, about 286 target sites. Now we only amplify those, so now we get that depth that you would get with the 16S, and we get the coverage because we have a very limited target site as opposed to an entire, let's say, five megabase uh, bacterial genome or something like that. 
in a sense, really, because you're, you're really only just looking for a pattern of genetic information in the end that, that's based on the idea that you have this species and other species that you know are relatively abundant but also have enough variation from person to person. Exactly, or the combination of them. There's a couple ways to look at it. Either you have the feature, you don't have the feature, which means most individuals do, but maybe there's a reason some don't. Or you look in the fragments that you've amplified by polymerase chain reaction standard way, and you look for the differences in those fragments. So ideally, the latter is the better one of the two because now we're looking at the diversity of fragments. So you may have a SNP at one of your bacteria's fragment that I don't have that distinguishes us. So we think that's the better way to go because then you have the resolving power and the sensitivity of detection. I'm sure you've thought of all these issues as well. So the first one, of course, is persistence. Now, you're saying that over a six-week period, these are relatively stable, or? In that one study, they were there over the three-year period. Three-year period. Yeah, and because, as I said, they're highly abundant, so it's less likely, in my mind, and of course, this is just an assumption, so you have to test it out, that this is a, a species that's going to rise and fall from an individual's presence to complete absence except for maybe some immune, uh, let's say, uh, an antibiotic regimen that's very severe, you could see something happening. But for most individuals, my prediction is, is P. acnes, as an example, is going to be on all humans. Yeah, I mean, so there's all sorts of variables that come to mind, of course, right? I mean, the person's hygiene, but the person's environment probably has a bigger environment than anything, right? I mean, I'm, I, went, I was in North Carolina, and it was 70 degrees. I'm here now. It's 30 degrees. I'm in a completely different area with respect to flora and fauna in general, there's got to be some variation that occurs on my skin and other kind of microbiome because of that, right? Well, that's the one of the reasons why we're taking the approach we have as opposed to these other traditional approaches that we said because we don't want to find the microbes and target ones that vary because of hygiene or because of environment or other sort of insults that could affect their presence or absence. We want ones that are going to persist in humans regardless of the location they are or how, what they eat or what they do because those are the ones that are stable for human identification. So ideally, if you want to identify somebody, you want a marker you can always type. Right. And that, as opposed to a marker that changes with time or weather conditions or whatever it may be. Those ones that change with the environment may be better for geolocation, which is also a much harder challenge. Well, yeah, people have tried to use microbes from soil for geolocation, and that's extraordinarily difficult. Well, you saw one of the presentations in the, the workshop yesterday was an individual was doing that work, and it convinced me that it's a very, very difficult problem, which I think we already knew. Going from month to month, the profiles of the major uh, taxa or species, or they fit what level, they were probably up at phylum level, varied substantially that you couldn't say that this came from this at this time frame because of the substantial variation. So it's a much more difficult one, but it also may be confusing because when you look at everything, you're not focusing on the ones that are the telltales to answer your question. So you get a lot of noise in there and can't answer it. So there probably are ones that are very good. So what you want for geolocation are microbes that vary from place to place, but are stable in the place they are. Sure. And, that, and so you can see how much more challenging that would be than one changes if you're in North Carolina, now you're in Seattle. Um, yeah, so I think uh, the other thing that of course comes to mind is it depends, your own genetics will determine to some degree which bacteria like to hang out on you, right, and, and to what extent. Yeah, perhaps, yes. And what you eat probably has some, some variation depends on what comes. 
what what's in your you know sweat and things like that is basically a, a filtrate of your blood in the end. Whatever's in your blood is going to be coming out and either feeding or or warding off those bacteria. So there are very particular things there that would be unusual to a person, I would think. Yeah, and this is why we have to be diligent to find the markers that are those, quote, stable ones. So how do you do that? That's a very difficult thing because we can't have such a controlled experiment that we control humans and what they do. But we could hedge our bets, and it seems reasonable that if, well, let's say we're at a university, so when a student comes in to the beginning of a semester and they're from, let's say, Nigeria, and uh, they're a very different environment than they would be in Fort Worth, Texas. And if you can get them when they first arrive and sample their skin, which is you know very non unintrusive kind of a test because you're just rubbing the surface of skin, and then look at their microbiome. And if the target markers that we focused on persist, that gives you a, a good indication as it throws anything else. So we, we could use people from diverse areas, you know, of different ages, different diets, and see which of these markers still persist. And so we wouldn't have to sample everybody to get a good confidence that that uh, seems to be a reasonable expectation. Sure, yeah. Well, that's the perfect example. I remember seeing something about uh, the differences between uh, air sampling at Lagos versus in the United States, and it's orders of magnitude of difference in colony forming units per uh, cubic meter. Yeah, like, likely different things. Each has their own that they deal with. Is these bacteria and others, the archaea and some eukaryotes, viruses, they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Yeah. And without them, we couldn't be what we are today. We need them for everything from immune response to protection from infection to synthesizing uh, compounds that we use. And there's even some suggestion that they tell us how to behave as opposed to we taking them around sure. for, for the free ride and stuff. Yeah, that's um, right. There's a nice uh, We're study. just a big ocean to them. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, I was listening yesterday saying is that the human is the host moving around. Maybe that the bacteria are the host that the human is falling around. <laughs> and that. So when you're born, you have about 20 some odd thousand encoding genes, protein encoding genes. By the time you, you die, you have over 5 million genes. And so those are all coming from the microbes. So we rely heavily on them to do just about everything. And there's even some interesting studies that suggest that your microbial makeup may affect whether you're obese or not. Sure, now, yeah. I, don't know if it's the, I don't know if it's the microbes react to the obesity or if they contribute to the obesity, but they've done studies with mice where they'll take the fecal microbiome of obese mice and put it into lean mice and they become obese. So, you know, there's a wide open thing of how these microbes will play out. Now, for forensics, of course, we're not interested in that per se, but it's a better way in some sense for the gene editing because you're not affecting your human cells, which is a very controversial and soon to be used more and more, but, you know, it has its issues. But changing your microbiomes like a probiotic approach to life and might be able to affect some uh, very positive things. Yeah, and of course, NIH is doing a major program yes. on the microbiome. So a lot of forensic scientists who are listening, I'm sure, are familiar with different kinds of samplings for skin. The one that kind of is an interesting analog would be for gunshot residue. And so if you're going to do traditional inorganic gunshot residue collection, it's relatively easy because you're just trying to get those you know, inorganic metallic particles and trying to get their morphology and composition. If you're trying to do organic gunshot residue, which you know the FTCUE has kind of been pushing a little bit because it's a, it might be more powerful than the inorganic, then you have to really pay attention very closely to sampling. And you're really talking about 
two very different mechanisms of sampling because if somebody leaves behind a sample of their microbiome on a glass, that's going to be different from the sampling that you're doing try to get an understanding of what their microbiome looks like. So how do you, how do you get around the sampling issues, or is that is it too early in the research to be able to say? I'll go with the latter because it's an easier answer to what I say, but of course. Um, I don't really think the sampling, per se, will be the issue because okay. when we have surfaces, we have, well, it's like anything. Uh, when you think of biological evidence, there's only a, actually four ways to collect, and everything's a modification of that. You either scrape it, you swab it, you uh, cut it out, or you just send in the whole thing. Right. right? So vacuuming's like a scraping kind of thing, or you know, so it's all traditions on that, uh, variations on that. But um, so if it's on the surface, I think we'll probably be collecting it in the same fashion that we collect any other biological sample, like semen stain, blood stain, saliva stain, per se. We might have to look at alternate extraction procedures, because you know, when bacteria uh, get on a surface, uh, many of them are going to be viable when they start, and then they're going to dry down, maybe form an endospore or something of that. So it might be a little more rigorous in the extraction process, and that may not be necessary. We'll, we'll have to see as we go along. The studies that have been done by uh, Rob Knight's group, for instance, have shown some pretty good success by looking at just that one targeted 16S ribosomal RNA, and they didn't do anything special per se to recover them than a traditional method of swabbing and going on the way. And when research groups get involved, they don't have the crime scene evidence team's experiences on that or some the crime lab experience. So the indications are it's probably not going to be substantially different to collect bacterial touch sample. And since we're also, we're not throwing away the human DNA, we want both, probably going to have one method to collect both and then just pull out aliquots to do one test and the other test hopefully merge them together to get a better, more robust answer than either one of them. It's worth noting, just to make sure people understand, that the viability of the microbes is irrelevant in the sense that you're, since you're doing a direct genetic test, whether they're alive or dead or whether you can grow them or not really isn't meaningful, right? You can, the technique works because you're looking really at their DNA, which is a very stable molecule, of course. Exactly, and ideally, if they were dead, it's even better because then it's fixed in time. If it's alive and we're in some situation where you could, they could start growing and culturing, you could have other species overtake the ones you're interested in in that environment. Because, you know, let's say you had a blood stain and it was wet, you can, which we already try to avoid when we're doing human DNA because it's going to degrade because either uh, enzymes from the donor of the sample or bacterial fungi are, you know, digesting away the material. Same thing would happen with this now, the bacteria you have that you're interested in other bacteria are going to become uh, opportunistic, take over, and could destroy what you're really interested in. Food, uh, remember from your, your CBW days, uh, food as a substance is filled with microbes. We all know that. Yeah. And if you collect it and you just keep it as it is and send it in in the little baggie or whatever it may be, what you get back is not what you started with in that. And right. So uh, hence why we refrigerate and freeze things in that. So th there will be issues on that. but. Being dead or collecting them, it may be that when we swab them, we may want to put them into a medium that kills all of it immediately. So we have it in that point. And those are studies that still have to be done. Yeah. This is, uh, I mean, it's interesting because the basic approach of what you're doing in terms of some of this idea of trying to use microbes to do forensic work is something that's developing in a bunch of different avenues. I mean, there's folks who are looking at it from a, the body farm taphonomy kind of perspective, trying to say, well, you know, as, as the species change based on what somebody 
date and also their level of decomposition, you know, both ante and post-mortem. That can be used as a time of death estimation. There's uh, folks who are looking at it, I know, for uh, looking for trace, looking, for example, at carpet fibers and seeing what kind of microbes there might be in the home. Uh, so it's an interesting kind of dynamic going on right now. Your grant is continuing. So where are you in the grant and where are you heading in terms of uh, where things are moving ahead now? Well, I think we've been very successful in our first two years and, you know, developed it. And we've got a couple of publications out to describe it. And we're just finishing up the uh, last phase of this grant, which was to have substantial number of individuals. Because the first one we did on eight individuals, and eight doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're doing three different body sites with triplicate samplings, you do 72 samples with a very elaborate laboratory process. It's a lot of work. So we're now collecting up to 50 individuals to finish this grant and meet our, uh, what we proposed and our obligations. You know, uh, when the next solicitation comes out, hopefully soon, We'd like to build on that because in the data we have, we've got some fairly good accuracies for assigning people to their microbiome swabs in a blind fashion, and also body site to the sample. So there seems to be, although we're looking for things that are ubiquitous, the relationships and abundances allow us to uh, give some body site information. So you might be able to say, this came from the hand as opposed to the, you know, to the to the chest, is yeah, that? Yeah, basically, and that. So to try to approximate the collar kind of situation, or the foot, because the foot was the one that you know, I told you didn't have a lot of success by the whole you know, genome shotgun approach, where we get very, very good representation with this targeted approach. So we'd like to now mine that data better because we didn't go into the extreme sequence differences amongst those fragments. We just did a nucleotide diversity, which is sort of a higher level mm -hmm. approach trying to figure out which is still the best way. So we'd like to mine that data, set up a few more experiments to, uh, to make sure we're answering the right question. But we think we can nail it down to get very high accuracies because we didn't exploit all the information. Once we have that, then the questions become the ones that were being asked for the, some of the other presenters like, you know, what about you know, your family members? What's the relationship? So when we, we think of human DNA, we have to think about the difference between related and unrelated individuals. Because there's more sharing of DNA amongst related individuals than unrelated on average. So we take that in consideration on how we interpret and put some significance to the data. The same thing would probably apply with microbes, but now it's not the related and unrelated individuals, it's the people who have contact with each other. So your relatedness now becomes uh, a husband and wife are, for our purposes uh, on a practical level, unrelated. A husband and wife microbiome will be strongly related. So now we would treat the, the microbiomes of people who live together maybe more closely associated than people who are unrelated by where they live and the contact they have. So we don't know the answers to that yet, and we haven't tackled that. Some are trying, but my opinion is until we have good markers, it's hard to actually determine what that should be. So you can play with the 16S ribosome RNA, whole genome work, but they're not strong enough to answer, I think, these type of questions, as well as a targeted set. There's something in between, so we can manage the information, get rid of a lot of the noise of all the thousands or millions of sites that are uh, distracting us, and find those that can allow us to do that. And my prediction is, is you and your spouse, or, whoever, or you, whoever you live with, are going to have more common um, microbiomes than uh, you and I have in that, because 
you're, I'm in Texas, you're in North Carolina, and until we, we have these podcasts, we don't meet, you know, and that's a, And I doubt that casual contact is going to change things, because even our own studies and the mind data that was publicly available, the hand became amazingly robust. Really? Yeah, which I'm is I'm very one surprised I, that, by that. That was our surprise, too. But, you know, it's, we didn't generate that initial data, and we generated our data, and yet we see the same thing. So I would have thought the hand would have a mess in that. But yet, one of the highest accuracies for assignment and best clustering of data. And that, so that's very, very promising in uh, moving forward for uh, uh, having something successful for touch DNA. So what I expect is you don't get immediate changes in your, your microbiome because you shake hands with somebody or one of the uh, presenters said, you know, it's more like a cloud around you, so you're depositing your microbes all over the place. Sure, like that kid in peanuts or something. Like right, yeah, <laughs> exactly. He used you Schroeder, uh, was a pig pen on the yeah, big uh, pen, big, big pen on that. And there's probably some truth to it, but it probably doesn't um, take over an individual so well. So how do you? So we have to know what the level of noise is from this, and what is to a person and to a touch object. And I just think having some more targeted approaches will allow us to manage that. Sure. Maybe in the long run we could use all the data, but you know, sort of again, simple to get to compound, to get to complex, maybe a better way to answering that. Sure. Well, it's very exciting to imagine that we might have just a new source of information that the forensic scientists might be able to access. And it's at least at the point where it's promising. And I hope very much that uh, NIJ sees its way clear to get you the next phase of funding for that. We do too. <laughs> I hope NIJ is listening. On that. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, on a serious level, NIJ has actually been very, very supportive uh -huh. on that. We, you know, we put this in and uh, they supported it and we're trying to produce something. And, you know, it's a good relationship. If they see that it's worthwhile, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll see it again as we go to the next level. Well, that's fantastic. So it's, the other reassuring thing is, is that we still have you uh, contributing some really cool and new science, Bruce, to those of us who are interested in microbes and genetics and forensic science. So that's great to have you uh, still in the game here. You're saying he just doesn't go away. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for being on Just Science. Oh, thanks so much. and uh, hope you have a good day. Next week on Just Science, John speaks with Dr. Kenneth Kidd of Yale University about how microhalotypes analyzed by massively parallel sequencing are valuable forensic tools. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Music